My name is Tyler Bublitz, and welcome back to the first Sunday of Advent for the week of November 27th, 2022, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to dig in this week's podcast, and Happy New Year, Happy New Church Year. I think this is worth a celebration. We are putting to bed Luke. We are waking up now with having Matthew as the gospel that we will be going through this year, and I think it's something that's worth celebrating. I think it's something that's worth spending some time and thinking about and looking at. We're going to have a very different perspective coming from Matthew this year compared to Luke, and it should be something exciting and fun. But I think it's also worth taking a look at the question that we had for last week, which was, do we spend enough time looking at the long horizon of faith instead of the short horizons of faith? And I think it's something that overall we don't. I think it's one of the things like right now, we look at the long horizons of faith going backwards instead of the long horizons of faith going forwards. We love clinging on to what we see as tradition. It's something that's been done over years and years and years. And so thus, we keep these short-term horizons on this is the way that people like it instead of looking at the long horizons of how is this going to benefit the church in the long run compared to short-term benefit at the cost of long-term gain. And so I think it's one of the things that we're, it's worth taking a look at. One of the responses we got this week was talking a little bit about the Leonard's meteor shower and then talking about how that kind of brought into the Apollo 13 and thinking back to the late 60s and what was all going on and what that has all meant. And I thought that was at least worth bringing up that we have the Artemis program going on right now, which is uh, process. We just had the rockets go up this last week. I'll attach some links down below. And how this is the beginning of phase two of actually putting people on the moon with the goal of actually having the first female on the moon in the coming years. So I think that's exciting. I think it's something worth looking at, thinking about, considering. And as we're looking at and thinking about deep space and looking beyond, I think it's something that's worth thinking about is how I had never really contemplated until reading about this this last week on how we've never had a female on the moon, that this is something that would be revolutionary to have a female astronaut on the moon. And so I think that's kind of fun, thinking about things in a long-term scale and what does that all mean. And I think that plays decently well into moving into Advent, this thing of long-term horizons, especially with the text that we get with that. So let's just jump right into it. The Old Testament reading this week is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This is a text that is talking about at this moment, Isaiah kind of helping forecast for the chosen people, and they're on the edge of war. And yet, he is talking about them coming together as the house of God and being this mighty force together. And especially when you get verse 4 and verse 5, you get this image and actually, and I'll try attaching a photo of it down below, the image of outside the United Nations in New York City building. The This verse here is kind of helping inspire that. He shall judge between nations and shall arbitrate for many people, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not rise up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So this idea of how 
We are moving into this different phase. We are moving into this place of further understanding, this place of working together instead of working against. And in that, how it will take time, how it will be a process to be able to take a sword and move it into a plowshare and making a spear into a pruning hook. These don't just happen overnight. This takes process. This takes time. This is something that isn't necessarily easy for it to have happen. So it's this idea of making sure everything works together. The psalm this week is Psalm 122, all nine verses of it, and it plays kind of along the lines of what we had here in the first reading of looking at the house of the Lord and all these bonds that we have of coming together as the tribe of Israel and realizing that we are not worthy of it, but that we are praying that this is God's peace resonates through all of us to help us understand what God is actually doing. The New Testament text this week, or second reading, is from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. This, then, is this idea of how if we are moving toward the Lord, that this is then a transformation within us. That this is something that is very different than we were before, and that we then should be embodying this image of Christ all the time, not necessarily just praying it away and praying for forgiveness, but this idea of living honorably and putting the flesh on of the Spirit of God again in us, that we have embodied this image of who God is within us to be able to pursue and move us forward in that way. The Gospel text this week is out of Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. This is a hard text to kind of be dropping right in, especially as it is near the end of Jesus's ministry, but there's a lot of things here that I think it kind of plays into this preparing image that we get with Advent. So we have this idea, and we're going to kind of work backwards through it. I think one of the more convicting things that we have to remember coming from verses 43 and 44 But understand this, the owner of the house, if he had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This idea of how nobody knows the time in which God is coming, and this is even Jesus stating this at this point, that the return of when Jesus is coming back is not even known to Jesus. It is something that is only known to God. But he kind of gets into this idea of how you have in coming from verses 40 to 42, two men going out in the field, one being taken, one being left, two women grinding meal together, one being taken, one being left. And again, this idea of keeping awake and being observant for the day of the Lord. And even then coming from verse 36 at the beginning of this, But about the day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, that when this is all happening. So this is a text of Jesus kind of forecasting a little bit of what is going to happen long term and realizing that Jesus doesn't even know when this is. But yet looking at how God has continued to provide for these people in the flood and making sure that Noah's family was protected And yet realizing there will be another time when we are leaving this place. But I also think it's important to notice that 
like two going out in the field that they were noticed. One was left, one was taken. So this idea of you had to at first recognize that there were even two people going out. There were at least two women grinding meal together and to be able to realize that one was gone and one was left. So before we jump into how faith and science comes together in this text for this week, we have to do our shameless plugs for Working Preacher. If you haven't checked out Working Preacher, I'd highly recommend it between their sermon brainwaves, podcasts, or commentaries or discussions. Since I'm not a dean minister, I use them on a weekly basis to help bring you some different ideas and concepts. And just there's some great material over there. I love having different biblical scholars being able to dig into these texts and give some context to go into these texts. So if you haven't checked out workingpreacher.org, I'd highly recommend it. I'd also highly recommend checking out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt Divinity Library. I really enjoy it, and as I've already stated, the art section is amazing on here to be able to look at and to think about and look at things in a different way and how have people artistically throughout time and space looked at these texts. But there's also hymns, colors. Also, I really enjoy how they label the text week to week. I use them week to after week for looking at these texts. So if you haven't checked out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library, I'd highly recommend that. Also, keep alert for the Son of Man is coming in an unexpected hour, and the Son of Man doesn't even know when this is. This idea of then coming together and working together to be able to not have nation rising up against nation, but on the contrary, nation working with nation to be able to provide for everyone. And realizing that the Son of God is working within us and that we then should be utilizing that to see God move within the people. There's a lot there and a lot to comprehend and think about. But I think one of the things that I kind of stumbled across this last week, I think, helps kind of bring this a little bit more together in a very unique way, in a way that I can guarantee that I have never talked about but also in a way that I'm really excited to talk about a little bit more. And over the years, and as we are, we've talked about, we're approaching five years of doing this, I have brought up my high school biology teacher, Brian Collins, a lot. And this last week, he sent me something that he got to present and be part of, and I thought it was super awesome. And it's definitely going to be in the links below this week because what he has been working on the last few years, I think, ties into this text and Advent itself really, really well. And what that is, is looking at the Connecticut Wobbler. So the Connecticut Wobbler makes a huge migration every year. We're talking Central South America to the northern United States into Canada and their breeding grounds being kind of the Minnesota, Wisconsin up into Canada area and southern Canada. So it's a huge migration that these guys have been going through. And it's been something that over the years we've been trying to look at. But these are a little bit more of a sulky bird. These are a bird that definitely likes being away from people. Definitely not a bird that you're going to be finding in your typical suburban neighborhood. This is something that's going to be definitely looking for specific like older jackpang stands or looking for black spruce stands. 
with no mid-level canopy that it's open and then having some undergrowth as we'll talk a little bit more underneath and how important that seems to be for this bird. In Wisconsin where I initially grew up one of the things that is super neat is that they do their breeding bird atlas and they've done some really neat things with being able to track bird populations and things of that nature. So between 1995 and 2000, they did the first breeding bird atlas. And in that, they were able to find different birds throughout the state and where they're breeding. And again, in the breeding bird atlas, they're very specific. They're trying to look at for nesting and making sure you can confirm that there's pairs and that the population, what is actually going on. Between 2015 and 2020, they repeated this process again. And in doing this, the Connecticut Wobbler itself, in its number of observations, which there weren't that many to begin with, because of, again, partially the difficult habitat in which it resides, but also just the population as a whole, they have found that there is nearly a 70% decline in the amount of Connecticut wobblers in the state of Wisconsin in observation. And so then what has happened over the last couple years is that they've been trying to understand more what's going on. And like many things, when you're trying to do population surveys of species, it gets really difficult because you can't necessarily ask them all to turn in uh, population density type information or things like that. Think about how difficult it is for people to do census, much less nature in and of itself. So it's looked at as a uncommon or narrowly distributed bird. It estimates to be somewhere between 1.8 to 4.7 million birds, which is solid, but it's also not that far from potentially losing them. And that's where, especially within the state of Wisconsin, as they're looking at these birds and trying to understand what is all going on, it's been difficult. It's been something that's been a long process, a hard process, but it's also been, as we will find here as we tell the story, a really fruitful process in certain ways. Pun intended when you get that one. So in doing this, one of the things that I was super excited about when I got this was, again, as I stated, my high school biology teacher, Brian Collins, who's like a second dad to me in certain ways, is been working with this. And so they've been looked at the data from the breeding bird survey, the second one from 2015 to 2020, realizing how much the locations on where they'd even initially spotted these birds, just they weren't there. They weren't understanding why the population seemed to be dipping, having a 70% decline over 20 years just in what they were observing for the breeding bird atlas was fairly substantial. So they decided, let's dig in the next couple years and look into this. So in 2021, they looked at what they had interpreted as looked to be some solid habitat for Connecticut wobbler in the northern part of Wisconsin 
in places that potentially they had been seen before, and they were skunked. The whole year, they were absolutely skunked and weren't able to find anything. So Brian Collins went to the spot where they knew that they were and just to verify he wasn't going crazy. And yes, realized that, yes, they are still here. He went to the spot. He wasn't being deceived, especially when you're doing point count surveys, which a lot of these types of data for this bird is. It is all audio. So it's one of those moments where you're not hearing it it can seem like, are you going crazy? Are you just ignoring it? Are you, has it become just noise or whatever, just to verify to make sure that you are actually hearing the call. So in 2022, the big thing that they then went and spent time looking at was where they know that these birds are. Let's go in and see if we can learn more about the habitat and really realize like how many birds are we dealing with here. So in this spot in northern Wisconsin, he found that there was three different pairs that were had set up their territories and been working their territories. But in doing this, he realized there was a lot of things that he learned in doing this. First and foremost, like we talked about, they seem to like spruce or aspen or jack pine with no mid-level canopy at all. Nothing in the mid-level. Everything is just wide open and sparsely distributed. So you have trees that are kind of there, but then there's nothing to really block your eyesight as you're looking through this forest. And then underneath, what he was finding was potentially something that was super important for these birds was blueberries, that they had this low-level canopy that was there. In observations, he realized a couple different things. One, these are late migrants to arrive into Wisconsin in particular. Two, he never found a nest. And what he figured was they were probably nesting underneath the blueberries. And unlike a lot of birds where you're looking for fledglings or something like that, because they have to fly out of the nest, these birds, what he was observing was the male would be up in the tree singing most of the day long. The female he would rarely see maybe for a few minutes in the whole morning session that he would do. Now, typical point count surveys, you're getting up before sunrise, you're done between 9.30, 10 o'clock because things now have warmed up so much. There's usually some additional noise if you're in more of a residential area. Bird songs isn't carrying as far. Birds aren't singing as much anymore. So there's just kind of usually a four to five hour window for doing point count surveys. In doing that, he would realize that he'd see the female for maybe a couple minutes at most. Well, meanwhile, the male would be singing for hours on end. In doing this, over his months of tracking these birds, with the summer season being for point cone surveys, usually from late May till about, at most, June, July 15. That's really pushing it. Typically, you're wanting to kind of wrap up around the 4th of July if possible. But what he was really realizing was likely the late arrival, but then they were hatching somewhere between June 24th and June 25th, these Connecticut wobblers, because birdsong seemed to dip a little bit at that point, likely meaning that the birds were fledging out at July 3 and 4 at about eight days, which is very atypical for wobblers. Typically, it's more in the ballpark of 
12 days, 14 days. And instead of like flying out, these would kind of walk out. And the reason being is that he figured out that the mother would be underneath the blueberry canopy, making sure and watching the young kind of go and explore and probably forage for food. Meanwhile, the male is contacting through some different calls with the female to make sure that he is over the top kind of protecting and watching as these wobblers are kind of moving through. And likely by late July, these Connecticut wobblers start to disperse their breeding grounds and start preparing for their migration south. What does this all have to do with the text that we had this last week? Well, there was one thing that really stood out to me as I listened to this hour and a half talk that he gave. And again, I'll attach the link down below. I'd highly recommend actually checking this out. But in breeding bird surveys, typically you're looking for carrying food as one of the ultimate clarifications that yes, this is a pair that's doing and it's working together and that they must have had reproductive young. And in the three different nesting pairs that he was able to find, he kept finding probable notes, probable notes, some confirmed notes of like distraction displays or different things of that nature. Nothing that's as good as carrying food. But he found one time that he was, that they carried food down. Now, what makes this significant is he spent over 60 hours with these three different pairings to find this information to take all these notes, to take all these different things that he learned about these birds, it took over 60 hours to find once that a bird was carrying food and confirming that it was bringing it to the young. One of the telltale signs to show that, yes, this is a reproductive pair, that there must be some young. In being out there, and as he kind of discusses in this talk, it's the recognition on there is so much we don't know about the Connecticut wobbler because we haven't spent the time to genuinely go and study just the Connecticut wobbler. That there's so much that we haven't known because we haven't spent the time and how difficult it is for this bird because it's not a bird that's easy to go and find and see. And two, to really be able to see it, you have to sit and wait and watch and listen. Sit and wait and watch and listen. Day after day after day after day to really be able to start understanding the ecosystem in which they're building. Part of where he talked about why he thought somewhat the populations were potentially disappearing was the blueberries were providing coverage and food for these birds. And if we're going through and harvesting the forest, it doesn't allow for these older stands of jack pine to be able to be there. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have the right conditions underneath for the blueberries to be there for the birds to succeed. We haven't spent the time to understand what this connection actually is for these birds to be able to know what this all means. As we are entering into Advent, as we are entering this new church year, as we are looking at understanding one, as we see in the Isaiah text and the Psalms, working together with other people, working together as the tribes, as the people of God, means that we need to be able to understand what other people are doing, being able to understand and actually genuinely be interested instead of casting it aside, taking the time to observe, watch, and 
learn and listen to understand further what is going on so that we can do like what the Romans text is talking about and really be able to live out our faith, not in arrogance, not in debauchery or drunkenness or licentiousness or quarreling or jealousy, but actually genuinely understand the culture so that we're honoring it in an honorable way. And we're living out our faith in an honorable way because of the understanding we have taken from it. The Matthew text is asking us to be observant. It's asking us to slow down and to take the time to be observant, to watch, to look, to listen. I don't know about you, but I don't know of many people who have go to areas looking for something and are willing to spend 60 hours plus looking and watching and waiting for something that may or may not ever happen. And especially that they're only able to do it in four-hour sections, which means day after day after day doing the same process, taking notes, trying to understand this community in a much different way to really be able to observe and watch and learn and listen and be able to grasp at a much deeper level what does this all mean. In this case, Brian Collins sat there and was waiting and didn't know if the unexpected hour was going to come. And in this case, it did. The unexpected hour of watching a parent fill its bill with caterpillars and go back underneath the blueberries with food. Something that shows that, yes, I am caring, but it took hours upon hours upon hours of watching, waiting, looking at the male birds singing and singing and singing, starting to understand the connection that the male and female had, what was going on, making educated hypotheses about what is going on within this community, and thus inspiring other people to dig deeper to better understand this bird species and thus better understand our own ecosystem where we live. To me, this is a great example of what is actually going on here within these texts, asking us to be observant, asking us to slow down enough for us to spend the time to understand what God is actually doing. How often do we actually spend the time and sit and watch and listen for God? Being able to really be there and prepare ourselves for what God is doing and being still to do it. Collins talks about because these birds are acting more like mice crawling underneath the blueberries, they had to be very slow in their movements, had to be very precise in their movements, and so that they didn't accidentally kill what they were observing, even though they couldn't see it, which meant a lot of times being able to find a spot to sit and watch and learn and listen. We as people, I feel, struggle with this whole idea of sitting, watching, learning, and listening taking notes. How often do we actually do that with God ourselves? And as we are entering this season of preparation that is Advent, recognizing, looking back on all the promises that were leading to where we're going, but also realizing the promises that have been left for us to continue to live out now moving forward. The thing that's in common is we had to sit and watch and learn and listen. We had to slow down enough to be able to do that. We have to be observant to really be able to absorb the subtleties of maybe the ways that God is trying to communicate with us, the subtleties of what God is actually doing, the things that take time to put together and process and think about. So the question I have for you this week is when have you sat and watched and learned and listened with God? When have you sat and learned and watched and listened with God? 
because I think it's something that we all could work on. Having just gotten through Thanksgiving, it's very easy for us to be able to be saying, I'm thankful for God. But are we sitting and actually watching and observing what God is doing to be able to say that with a whole heart and be able to give actual examples of what God is doing? I appreciate people like Brian Collins being able to help us learn and see and scientists in general doing the hard work of sitting there and trying to observe and watch and learn and listen for something that may or may not happen and trying to understand why. Because in our own faith, we should be doing the same thing. The question really becomes is how often are we really doing it? Understanding communities, understanding how the Connecticut Wobbler is one part of an ecosystem and the role that it plays and us being able to understand the ecosystem in which we are happen to be part of and understanding at a deeper level than our own role within that ecosystem can help not only the Connecticut Wobbler thrive, but in a lot of ways, not only other species thrive, but really ourselves thrive because of the understanding that we have given, the time that we have taken to actually understand. And in doing that, I think then we have the better connection of actually who our creator is and why our creator came to us and cares about us. So we'll wrap this up as we always do. I pray God blesses you through your faith and amazes you through science.